you would, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7, that will be our text this Lord's Day as we continue to walk through the book of Exodus together. If you've been with us, you know that we have looked at how the Hebrews, the people of Israel, were enslaved there in Egypt and they cried out to God for a deliverer. And long before they issued that cry, God had already been preparing to send them a deliverer in Moses. If you've been with us, you know that Moses received that call from God uh, with some hesitancy. Uh, He didn't feel like he was the right man for the job, but God has grown him in his faith to the point where he does go to Egypt. Uh, He goes to Pharaoh, who was a wicked ruler over Egypt, and he demands him to let the people go and lets them know that that the one true God has commanded this. Pharaoh does not respond well. In fact, uh, he mocks God. He doesn't know who this God is. And not only does he not let the Hebrews go, but he increases the burdens on them so that they cry out, not to God, but they cry out to Him. And then they go and they complain and they curse Moses for the situation that he has put them in. And so Moses then goes and cries out to God and asks God, God, why have you done this? Why have you brought me here as the deliverer and yet these people aren't delivered? And God reminds him of what he's about to do in Exodus 6, verse 1. The Lord says, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And so what God tells Pharaoh, he, or tells Moses he's going to do is he's not only going to put Pharaoh in a position where he allows the people to leave, he's actually going to be the one pushing them out of Egypt. And to get Pharaoh to that point, God is going to bring great calamity and suffering on the Egyptians and on Pharaoh. And that's what we're about to see as we begin now in chapter 7. But before God brings these plagues, there will be yet another opportunity for Pharaoh to relent and for Pharaoh to believe in God's Word. And yet he won't because of the hardness of his heart. But what I want us to see today from this text as we look at these first 13 verses in Exodus 7 is the contrast we're presented with between Moses and Aaron who obey God and Pharaoh who opposes God. And as we look at this contrast, I want us to consider in our own lives how are we responding to God today? Because as I hope you'll see through the text, you are either obeying Him or you are opposing Him. There is no middle ground here. That's what we'll be considering as we walk through these first 13 verses of Exodus 7. So out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to, if you would stand as I read our text for us today. Picking up now where the Lord instructs Moses once again, he says this. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I will multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old 
when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it will become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. You would pray with me, church. Father God, we do come to you in Jesus' name, and we pray that you would use this very word in our lives today as we see those who obey you and we see those who oppose you. Help us, Lord, to today decide who we will serve and whether we will be obedient to you or live in opposition to you. And the only way we can be obedient is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So help that to be clear and help us to repent and have faith. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. As I've already mentioned, we will see quite a contrast in today's text. And if you've been with us, you've already seen contrast because the book of Exodus is a book of contrast. It's a book that shows us the difference between those who will obey God and walk by faith and those who will disobey God and refuse to have faith, be unfaithful, be faithless. And we've seen this in every chapter. We saw it especially last Lord's Day, even as we looked at that genealogy of Moses and Aaron. If you were with us as we walked through that family tree, we saw those who had exercised faith, who had obeyed God, who had trusted in Him, and as a result left a legacy of faith. We saw, for example, the faith of Levi's son and how they consistently ministered in the temple. And we talked about just the blessedness of continuous service to the Lord. We saw the faithfulness and the zeal of Aaron's grandson, Phinehas. And how during a time, a dark time in Israel's history, where people were using the temple for all kinds of immoral and wicked deeds, Phinehas goes in there and he cleanses the temple. We talked about the need in our culture today for zealous followers of Christ who will stand up in an ungodly culture and preach the true word of God. But we also saw that contrast between those who walked by faith and those who didn't. And so we looked at, for example, Levi's great-grandson, Korah, and how Korah rebelled against the authority of God by rebelling against Moses' authority, and ultimately, God took his life for it. We saw the faithlessness of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, who were given the task of following the Lord's commands and offering sacrifices there in the temple, but they chose to not follow God's commands, to to do things their own way, to offer a strange fire to the Lord, and God took their lives for it. So hopefully what, what you saw last week and what you're continuing to see in Exodus is that we have this decision whether we're going to trust God and walk by faith or whether we're going to trust in ourselves and not have faith. That That contrast that we continue to see in Exodus. And we'll see it today. Again, as we look at Moses and Aaron and their obedience to God, and we look at Pharaoh and his disobedience. But we'll start 
by looking at Moses and Aaron. Point one there in your outline. And as we see in this text, their response to God was one of obedience. Their response to God was one of obedience. And so what we have in these first seven verses here is really just a summary, a reminder to us and to them of things that God has already said. God starts by reminding Moses of exactly what role he and Aaron would play in his sovereign plan for the Hebrews to be delivered from their slavery, rescued, and taken to the promised land. And so first he says to Moses, Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. Now God is not saying to Moses that somehow now Moses is divine. But what he's saying to Moses is that Moses now has divine authority. Moses will speak on behalf of God. Moses will be the one who receives God's Word and then speaks that Word. But you'll notice in this text, and you'll notice from our other studies, that Moses isn't going to speak that directly to Pharaoh because God is going to also involve Aaron. He says, your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I commanded you, and your brother Aaron should tell Pharaoh. If you've been with us in this study, that takes you back to Exodus chapter 4 in the burning bush where Moses at that point is struggling with faith. And if you remember that encounter, Moses says to God, God, I I am slow of speech and tongue. And then Moses says to God, God, you need to send someone else. And God deals with Moses very graciously. And in His grace towards Moses, He provides His brother Aaron. And he says, Aaron can go and Aaron can be your mouthpiece. But but that was at a time when Moses was struggling in faith. Now we come to this point where Moses is obedient and yet he is still sending Aaron to go with Moses. The question is why? Is this because Moses is still struggling in his faith or might there be another reason for it? And I think we find perhaps another reason with a better understanding of the ancient Egyptian culture. See, during this time... Pharaoh was believed to be God. As we've looked at before, Pharaoh was believed to be the incarnate son of the sun god Ra. So he was treated as a god. He was worshipped as a god. And one of the things you find as you study the ancient pharaohs is that the pharaohs often would not communicate directly to the people because they were divine. They were seen as God. And there needed to be a distance between them and the common people. And so oftentimes, rather than Pharaoh issuing a command to the people, Pharaoh would issue his command to a spokesman. That spokesman would then issue that command. This was to help people understand that Pharaoh was not like them. That Pharaoh was divine and he had divine authority. That he wasn't going to talk to him, but a spokesman would. And so now, into Pharaoh's court comes another who has divine authority. Another who does not speak directly, but has a spokesman speaking for him. Pharaoh and the people in Pharaoh's court would have understood what was taking place here. That this was Moses coming to them as one who had divine authority. And Pharaoh did not like this one bit, nor does he respond well to it. Because as we already know, and as God reminds Moses here, Pharaoh had a hard heart and Pharaoh was not going to listen. We read that very clearly in verse 4. God says to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen. And we see in this text, as we've already seen in others, he does not listen because the hardness of his heart. 
Now I understand when we bring up Pharaoh having a hard heart and God hardening Pharaoh's heart, a lot of questions come. And a lot of times we read this text and texts like it and we question what's going on here because it doesn't seem quite fair. It doesn't seem quite fair that God is hardening someone's heart because we read this text and it seems unfair to us because we tend to think that Pharaoh was a pretty decent person who had the best intentions and then along came God and gave him this whammy of a hard heart and just made him a wicked person. But that is not a correct understanding of Pharaoh. In fact, in the 20 some odd times that we'll read in the book of Exodus about Pharaoh's heart being hardened, we, we will see it referred to in three different ways. I mentioned these before, I'll mention them again. But we will see very clearly there will be times when God will harden his heart. But we'll also see other times where the text tells us Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And then we'll see other times in the text where it'll tell us Pharaoh's heart was hardened. It doesn't say whether God was doing it or whether Pharaoh was doing it. And what it's helping us to understand is this is a wicked man with a hardened heart and God is increasingly going to harden it. And so we need to, to, to shift our understanding from this naive mindset that somehow Pharaoh is at the last night of church camp waiting to go forward. That, that somehow Pharaoh has just heard the gospel presented and he's just ready to drop to his knees and repent, but this mean old God just won't let him do it. That somehow Pharaoh has the best of intentions and is somehow a good moral person, but God just doesn't want to hear his cry for forgiveness. What we have in the text is a man who was wicked, a man whose heart was hardened towards God, and what we see is given every opportunity to repent. His heart only becomes harder and harder and harder. And what we will also see is that God in His sovereignty will work in such a way that He will even use the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. He will even increase the hardness of his heart in order to receive glory for Himself. And that's what we continue to see in this text. That God will use the hardness of His heart. But we also see that there will be those whose hearts are not hardened. We will see those who will obey God. And we see an example of that here in Moses and Aaron. As God issues to Moses again this command of what he's to do, not only does he say, Moses, here's what you're to do, he tells Moses exactly what is going to happen every step of the way. And then we get to the point in the text where it says very clearly, verse 6 of chapter 7, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now for some of us, we might read this text and think, well, of course they did. <laughs> I mean, God not only said, here's what I want you to do, He told him exactly what was going to happen every step of the way, and so it seems a bit simple to us, because it's like, well, of course they would do it, because they already knew exactly what was going to happen. We tend to think that if we knew exactly what was going to happen, that that would make every decision so much easier. Well, if I only knew the outcome, well, that would make the decision easier, wouldn't it? And oftentimes what holds us back from stepping out in faith is this idea that there's this big unknown out there. If I truly trust God and surrender my life to Christ, that means I am relinquishing control. And the problem with that is we like to be in control. 
Because we tend to think that when we're in control, we get to call the shots and we get to make the decisions and we get to control everything. And if we let go and relinquish control and surrender to God, there's this sense of unknown. And we fear that. And so we can read texts like this and think, well, Moses and Aaron didn't have much of an unknown. They knew what was going to happen. Well, if I knew what was going to happen, I could step out in faith like this. But friends, do you realize God's Word tells you the very same things that it told, that God told Moses and Aaron? God not only calls us to obedience, He tells us exactly what will happen. He tells us what's going to happen if we walk by faith with Him. He tells us what's going to happen if we disobey Him. He might not tell us every specific along the way, but He gives us the big picture and He calls us to a promised land. So just like the Egyptians who spent hundreds of years in slavery under the hand of a wicked serpent king, just as the Egyptians needed a deliverer to rescue them, they couldn't rescue themselves, and just as the Egyptians were called to go towards a promised land, that's exactly what God has put before us. We are born enslaved to a serpent king. We are born in sin, the Scripture says to us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are born under a death penalty. The wages of sin is death, the Scripture tells us. And we, like the Hebrews, need a deliverer. God demonstrates His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ is our deliverer. And just as the Hebrews of old were called to a land of promise, you and I have been as well. God has promised us a new heaven and a new earth and He has given us great details about it. There is no more mourning. There is no more crying. There is no more death, disease, cancers, hospitals. None of it. He has given us the big picture. And yet we still struggle to walk by faith. Why is that? Well, I think in part it's because we are a people who don't like rules, do we? (laughs) We don't like being told what to do. And oftentimes when we are told what to do, we break the rules, don't we? I'm guessing that most of you on your way here this morning did not get on the road and see the speed limit sign and say, I am so grateful to have a limit on my speed today. I just can't wait to drive underneath that speed limit. I am so thankful for whoever set that speed limit because left to myself, I would probably speed. No, you thought the same thing that I would say I thought, but I'm up the road, so I didn't really worry. You thought the same thing most people thought. Is it 8 over or 10 over? How fast can I go and not get in trouble? Or, you know, what... What's the limit here? How can I push myself right up to the edge to it? Because we often look at rules and we don't look at them joyfully. That's why we have expressions in our culture like... Rules are made to be broken. (laughs) Or others, if you obey all the rules, you miss all the fun. We tend to look at rules as a bad thing. We tend to look at rules as constricting and binding. And so we want to push back against them. A couple weeks ago, as y'all knew, Sandy and Parker and a couple of our girls were in Poland. So it was me and Caroline. And I was very thankful. Uh, A very gracious family in our church took us out to eat one night. And we went to Outback Steakhouse. If you want to take us out to Outback Steakhouse, I'd be glad to leave them home, and I'll go with you there as well. Outback Steakhouse has a motto. You know what their motto is? No rules, just right. 
when you walk into the building, there are rules. On the door, there are rules. There are rules that you have to wear a shirt. There are rules that you have to have shoes on. There are rules about what time you can eat there. When you sit down at the table, there are rules about how much you're going to pay for each of those meals. Imagine what it would be like if the waiter or waitress came to you at Outback and said, you know, no rules, just right. So we've, we've, we've gotten rid of all the rules today. And, and so we're not even going to give you a menu. You just look around this place and you look at somebody's table and if hey, they have something you like, well, you just walk over there and you take it. How would that work? I, I can tell you right now, you come take that bread from a certain nine-year-old, she's going to take that knife out. You come take my outback steak and Caesar salad, I'm probably not going to say, bless you, have a good day. And I'm certainly not going to say, no rules, just right. <laughs> That's not even a rule, by the way, of outback. You, you don't walk in and on the wall they say, uh, you are not allowed to take other people's food. But you don't do that, do you? I mean, maybe, you know, family members, but you don't walk to some total stranger and just start eating off their plate, do you? Why, why is that? Why don't you do that today? Why don't we do a little social experience? Everybody go out to eat today and walk in the restaurant and just start eating off everybody's plate. Does that sound all right? Why don't you do that? You don't do that because there is a rule written on your heart. It doesn't need to be written on the restaurant. It is written on your heart. There is a universal rule written on your heart. You cannot get on a plane at the Louisville airport and fly to any destination on the planet Earth where when you get off the plane, they will say to you, oh, welcome to our place, go take whatever you want. There is a universal moral code written on your heart put there by our Creator God. And He has put that there for good reason. Things will probably be better for you if you don't walk around eating everybody's food. Amen? There are good things about rules. And God has issued us commands not because He is a universal killjoy, but because God has good for you. And that's why so often when He gives commands, He says, if you obey this, it will go well for you. This will go well for you. But if you disobey, if you say these rules were made to be broken, then friend, in the end, it's going to be you who's broken. God has given us these things for good. And Moses and Aaron are starting to experience this goodness of obedience. And yet we find that not everybody will experience that goodness because we see a very clear example here in Pharaoh of one who rather than bring himself into submission to the Lord will push back in further opposition to him. That brings us to the second point there in your outline. Pharaoh's response to God is one of opposition. God reveals His sovereign plan to Moses and Aaron and they obey. He reveals His sovereign plan to Pharaoh and we will see quite a contrast in His response. In fact, God goes through the details here with Moses and Aaron and tells them very clearly. Verse 9. When you go to Pharaoh, here's exactly what He's going to say. I mean, that this is a sovereign God here who is not responding to Pharaoh, but He's ahead of the game. He's even telling Moses and Aaron, here's exactly what He's going to say. Verse 9. Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle. 
And so God says, listen, when you go to Pharaoh and you tell him again that you're here on my behalf, you have divine authority, then Pharaoh's going to say, oh yeah? Well then show me a miracle. Now, now we'll look at the miracle in a moment, but I, I just want to pause to make note here. God's going to show Pharaoh all types of miracles and not one of them is going to change his heart. Miracles do not change hearts. And we need to be mindful of that. Because so often in evangelism and witnessing and sharing the gospel, we tend to think, well, God, if you would just work in this miraculous way, then this person would repent. And people will actually say that of themselves. When I share the gospel with people and they don't repent and place their faith in Christ, I will usually leave them with a passage and a question. And oftentimes, I'll leave them with a passage from 1 John that says if, if you believe, if you repent, if, if you have the Son of God in your life, you also have eternal life. But if you don't have the Son of God, you don't have eternal life. I write this to those of you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And I'll ask the person as graciously as I can. You've made it clear that you don't have Christ as your Lord. He's not in your life. So based on this passage, what do you also not have? And if they're honest, they'll say it. Many have. Oh, well, I don't, I don't have eternal life. And I'll follow that up with a question. What, what would it take for you to repent and trust in Christ? And on more than one occasion, I've had people say to me, well... If God would just... And then they describe some type of miracle. Maybe it's heal a loved one. Well, one guy actually said, well, if Jesus walked right through that wall right now, I'd believe. And people have this notion that if, if God would just perform a miracle, that then, yeah, I would trust in Him then. And what I often say to them when they say that is I say, no, no, you wouldn't. A miracle is not going to change your heart. Do you realize that there are people, according to the Scripture, who saw the resurrected Jesus Christ and still refused to believe? Who saw the man who said He was God, who said He was the Messiah, who went to the cross, who died on the cross, who was buried in the earth? They saw Him walking around days later and they still refused to believe. And yet you and I tend to think somehow, well, if God healed their granny or their grandpa or their Aunt Sue, well, then they'll believe. Friends, Pharaoh saw miracle after miracle after miracle. And they didn't change his heart. And that's because the only thing that can change the heart of man is a movement of the Holy Spirit of God. It is the Holy Spirit that makes dead men come to life. It is the Holy Spirit who takes this dead, cold heart of stone and replaces it with one that can beat and live. It is the Holy Spirit that breathes life into man. And so rather than praying, well, God, would you just show so-and-so a miracle that they'll believe, we need to pray, God, would you move through the Spirit that they might believe. God, would you open up their eyes that are sealed shut? Would you open up their ears that cannot hear? Would you give them life to believe? And apart from the Spirit doing that, their heart remains hardened towards the Gospel. And that's exactly what we see here in Pharaoh. He will see miracle after miracles, and yet he will not believe. But God still has a purpose for them. 
And so consider, for example, what we see here. Verse 10. And Moses and Aaron go to the Lord. They do as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants. And it became a serpent. And we've talked already about how God used this picture of the, the serpent with Pharaoh. Pharaoh and the Egyptians believed that serpents had power. In fact, they feared serpents. We know from ancient Egyptian literature that they had a, a very strong fear of serpents. And with that, I would say that that's a good thing. You should fear serpents. If you have a glass enclosure in your home with a snake in it, you're messed up. You are. I mean, you just are. I'll pray for you. They're not our friends. We step on their heads. The serpents are to be feared. And here, the Egyptians, they got that right. They feared serpents. In fact, we know from many ancient Egyptian texts that they had all kinds of spells and beliefs that if they wore this or said this or mixed this up and ate it or drank it, that that would protect them somehow from snake bites. That They believed that, that the serpents had the, the power. And so they would often wear, we know from Egyptian art, these, these different pieces of jewelry that would depict snakes or serpents, believing that somehow that, that would hold back the serpent gods from bringing calamity against them. And the Pharaoh would wear depictions of the serpent, serpents on his crown, serpents wrapped around his arms, his legs in gold, because he wanted the people to understand it's not the serpent you need to fear. It's me that you need to fear. I've got the power, is what he was telling them. And so when Aaron throws down his staff and it becomes a serpent, what God is saying to Pharaoh is, Pharaoh, you are not the one to be feared. I am the one to be feared. I am the one true God. And yet we know that Pharaoh is not going to walk an aisle and he's not going to repent. Why? Because once again, we see that, that signs and wonders and miracles, that, that's not what changes hearts. It's the Spirit of God that changes hearts. And unless the Spirit of God does something to Pharaoh's heart, it's just going to continue getting harder. And friends, that's exactly what we see in our culture today, isn't it? When we see people who refuse to accept the truth of Scripture, and, and they, will, they will make some pretty far reaches to find something to believe in to get them out of believing in God's Word. I was reminded of this not long ago. I was watching a video of an encounter. At a, some of you are familiar with the folks who built the Creation Museum. They've built this ark encounter, this depiction based on, as best they can understand from the Scripture, of what Noah's ark would have looked like. And there's all types of fascinating things in it. Not only about the ark and what all would have, the ark would have housed, but it, it gives a very clear presentation of the gospel in it. And the video I watched was of Bill Nye, many of you know him as the science guy, uh, touring the ark encounter. See, a little while back, uh, Bill Nye had a debate with Ken Ham, who is the head of the Creation Museum, and now this ark encounter. And, and after that debate was over, Ken Ham invited Bill to come back to the ark encounter when it was open, so he gave him a, a tour of it. And he accepted the invitation and came. And the video I watched was Bill basically speaking to a group of people who had kind of gathered there around him at the end of the Ark Encounter to ask him his thoughts on it. But specifically, they were asking him about his thoughts on uh, 
a common ancestor. That common ancestor being Adam and Eve in the Scripture's presentation that we all descend from Adam and Eve. And he said unapologetically, well, that's a bunch of nonsense. I don't believe that. But then he went on to say that DNA evidence does tell us that we have a common ancestor. (laughs) That there's a common DNA. That we all go back to some type of universal parent. He says, but I don't believe this nonsense about the Bible. So someone says, well, what do you believe? He said, well, honestly, what I believe is is that life didn't even originate on earth. That life originated on Mars. And that life came to earth at some point on a meteorite that crashed onto the earth and brought with it life from Mars and then that created life on earth. So someone asked the question, well, can you prove that? He said, absolutely. But not yet. We haven't figured it out yet. But one day we will. (laughs) One day we'll figure out that the key, one day we'll figure out the link and we'll be able to prove that life on earth came from a meteorite that came from Mars and brought life here and somehow life started on Mars and I'm sure we'll figure out how that began as well. Why was this man so unwilling to accept that this common ancestor that science points us towards is the biblical Adam and the biblical Eve? It wasn't because he didn't have a thorough presentation of the gospel. It wasn't because he didn't have a thorough presentation of what God's Word says. He just walked through a life-size replica of Noah's Ark. He had been to a museum that showed this is how life came to be. This is what God's Word said. It was not a lack of evidence. It's the hardness of his heart. And apart from the Holy Spirit of God changing Bill Nye's heart, he will remain hardened towards the Gospel just as you and I will apart from the Spirit's movement. Pharaoh here is not impressed by a staff turning to a snake. In fact, notice what happens. The... Pharaoh summons together his sorcerers and his magicians and they cast down their staffs and then their staffs become serpents. Now consider what Moses and Aaron are probably thinking at this point. That they've been through so many things already. They've stood before Pharaoh and said, here's what God says. And Pharaoh said, well, I'm not going to listen to God and I'm going to make things worse for the people. They go and they cry out to God. God says, okay, now it's time. Now Pharaoh's going to do it. Go do this. So they go. They throw the staff down. It becomes a serpent. The Scripture doesn't tell us, but I wonder if at this point they're, they're kind of feeling a little excitement here. Going, okay, here it is. Never seen a staff become a snake before. <laughs> they knew what the serpent meant to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They knew what God was communicating there, that He's the one true God, that He's got the power over all things. And as soon as they do it, what happens? The magicians of Egypt come, they throw down all their staffs, and they become snakes too. Perhaps in that moment, Moses and Aaron are thinking, Lord, what are you doing here? But God does not wait to hear that. God does not wait to hear a cry for them. God doesn't need them to pray about it, think about it, vote about it. Notice what happens. Verse 12. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Now again, that an understanding of ancient Egyptians helps us here. That They believed, among many other things, that when you swallowed something, when you ingested something, that you were then getting power from it. That, that its energy, its power, became yours when you took it in, when you swallowed it, when you ate it. So when Aaron's staff that becomes a serpent then eats up all these other serpents, That's communicating not only that God is powerful, that's communicating God is all-powerful. 
And I think the magicians probably understood exactly what this was communicating. Because as we'll find as we continue in God's Word together, is that it is the Egyptians in Exodus 8, who are the Egyptian magicians in Exodus 8, who are the first ones to acknowledge the power of the one true God. They don't repent, they don't turn, but they're the first ones we read in Exodus 8.19 who see what God is doing and who warn Pharaoh that this, this is a mighty God who is against us. That they caught the message. But Pharaoh refused to catch the message. Or if he did, his heart grew harder towards it. Verse 13. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. We see very, two very clear responses to God as He presents His sovereign plan here. We see Moses and Aaron who then obey, and we see Pharaoh who opposes. The question for you and I this morning is how will we respond to a sovereign God? And you notice I've left that blank in your notes, your response to God, because I can't fill that in for you. And you can't fill that in for me. It's a question for each one of us this morning. Will we obey the commands of God or will we oppose them? And when I say obey the commands of God, I don't mean will you call yourselves a Christian? Will you go to church on Sunday? Will you sing an occasional hymn? Will you identify yourselves as an evangelical when the next poll comes out? When I say obey, I mean, will you submit yourself to the authority of God and, and get into His Word and what it says to do? Will you do that? And what it says to not do, will you stop doing that? Will this be your greatest concern about your life and practice? That's what it means to obey God. And if you're not doing that, friend, then you are living in opposition to Him. And I realize many of us don't see ourselves that way. We like to live in this gray area of ignorance, you know. Well, if I don't read it, then I don't exactly know if I should or shouldn't. Then I just kind of go with my heart, because that will never lead me wrong. And then I'm kind of in this gray area. I mean, it's not like I'm Pharaoh. It's not like I'm actively rebelling and shaking my fist against God. But friends, whether you are actively rebellious or you are passively indifferent, you are in sin and you are in opposition to God. Ignorance is no excuse. Ignorance of God's Word is opposition to God's Word. And you are living in a very dangerous place and it will not end well for you. And yet I understand that is the message of our culture. Our culture says to us, rules are made to be broken, and that is exactly what our culture has done. And what our culture has done over time is just removed all these warnings from Scripture, all these commands from Scripture, and told you and I, just do whatever feels good and it will end well. But the Scripture warns us it will not end well. A number of years ago, I was reminded of this as I read a, a news story out of Tampa, Florida. An intersection there at Tampa where normally traffic had flowed just fine. They had 
all types of issues one day as they had wreck after wreck and even had fatalities. And what had happened was someone had come along at this busy intersection and thought it would be fun, thought it would just be a prank if they took the stop signs away. In fact, they took them from there and about 20 other locations. And they were later found guilty, convicted, and they're, they're in jail for that because people ended up dying. People who had driven through that intersection day after day after day came upon it one day and there was no stop sign. So they thought, okay, well I can just barrel right through it. And many witnesses would later say, as they're coming towards the intersection, they're going straight through it, there's no stop sign. They saw people coming right at them that were going to T-bone them, but they thought, well surely they've got a stop sign. Surely they're going to stop. But guess what those people were thinking? The same thing. And so both are going head on, head on. And then, destruction. Chaos. Why? Because someone came along and took the warning sign away. Because people ignored, ignored what they knew. They ignored that there had been a warning sign there. And once it was removed, they just went on about their way. And it didn't end well for them. And I'll never forget as I read that story just thinking, Lord, that that is a picture of our culture today. Right and left, people are just pulling signs out of the ground. God's Word is seen as archaic. God's Word says, don't do this, do this. And our culture says, well, that's judgmental. (laughs) That's archaic. I mean, maybe the cavemen believe that, but we're a civilized society. Who would say this is wrong? Because, you know, as long as this person loves somebody, or as long as this feels good, or as long as this isn't hurting anybody, well, who are you to tell them to stop? And God is shouting loudly from His Word to a lost people, stop, stop, stop. And we ignore Him. And so often we, we remove that warning from our culture. And friends, this will not end well for us. And so the message from God's Word is very clear to us this morning. Will we be a people who live in obedience to the Word of God, to every Word of God? Or will we be a people, whether we're pleading ignorance or saying it's gray areas, who at the end of the day oppose God? We have a choice before us. God has told us What will come from our choices? But nobody can make that decision for you and nobody can make it for me. We've got to make that decision for ourselves. And we can only make that decision rightly when empowered by the Spirit of the living God. And so as we pray today, that is my prayer for us, that we will be a people whose hearts are changed by the Holy Spirit and as a result who live in obedience to God. If you would stand together with me as I pray for us and we come into this time of invitation. Father, we come to You in the name of Christ, understanding that in our best efforts, we cannot obey You on our own. Something has to happen in our lives, in our hearts, for us to begin to want to obey You. Our heart needs to be changed. It needs to be regenerated. It needs to be made new. And so, Father, would You do that work among us now? Would You help dead people to come to life? Blind people to see, deaf people to hear, cold dead hearts to believe. 
And Father, for those of us who have come to that point of repentance in our life, perhaps this morning we find ourselves in a place where we know, we know we are not obeying You in every area of our life. And maybe we're the only person who knows. Maybe, maybe we've put on an appearance to everybody else that makes it look like everything's great. But Lord, we know there are areas of our life where we are in sin. Where we are headed towards destruction. Where we are ignoring the stop signs. Father, would you call us to repentance right now? And would you help us to say there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death, that the way we need to follow today is the gospel of Jesus Christ, not the heart of man. Help us to live in submission to that gospel in whatever it tells us to do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.